This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. This is Todd Shulkin, host of Inside Julia's Kitchen on Heritage Radio Network. I've been a part of the HRN community for six years, and I continue to be inspired by the incredible voices on our network. Every week, I'm excited to bring you some of the most interesting and influential voices from across the food world, just as Julia did from her own kitchen. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we, like Julia herself, strongly believe that food is an important part of life, and it's also fun to talk and learn about. This year, HRN celebrates its 10th anniversary, but we still need your support to keep food radio going strong for another decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate right now. If you're a big fan of Inside Julia's Kitchen, you can even specifically select it in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome celebrity chef Tanya Holland, executive chef and owner of Brown Sugar Kitchen Restaurants. In this episode, we'll talk to Tanya about how her soul food springs from her French training, race and gender in the professional kitchen, and we'll hear Tanya's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Now, race and gender in the kitchen was not something Julia tackled head-on. We've talked before about Julia's reluctance to be labeled a feminist, preferring not to be tied to a cause. Nevertheless, she was still a trailblazer, breaking down barriers of where exactly a woman's place was. Before Julia, there really weren't American celebrity chefs, and the few might have been able to identify weren't women. It's not that they didn't exist, they were just unsung heroes, like Edna Lewis, whose legacy we talked about with Sarah Franklin in episode 14. Now, Julia didn't let obstacles stand in her way. She did what she wanted to do through perseverance. She was not someone who took no for an answer. Maybe it was because she found her calling late in life that she wasn't about to let men or French norms stand in her way. It did help that she was imposingly tall and enormously charismatic. She was a hard person to say no to. These were all qualities that helped her succeed, but it's not like her rise to fame was easy or quick. Mastering the Art of French Cooking took nine years to publication. But Julia still had three major advantages. She was white, she was well-to-do, and she was well-educated. Now, like Julia, Chef Tanya Holland is a trailblazer, notably for women chefs of color. After also discovering that food was her calling, she studied cooking in France at the renowned École de Cuisine La Varenne, 
And what stands out about Tanya also is her perseverance. While Julia had long ago helped jumpstart the American food revolution, today's conversations about cultural sensitivity and opportunity for all were nascent when Tanya started out. That door was not yet cracked open, and Tanya had to burst through it. Having cooked with many acclaimed chefs in France and the USA, Tanya rose to prominence after she opened Brown Sugar Kitchen in West Oakland more than 10 years ago. Two cookbooks and an appearance on Top Chef season 15 later, she's now a bona fide celebrity chef. Brown Sugar Kitchen, renowned for its chefy take on soul food, has been reborn and is expanding as a brand with new locations in San Francisco's Ferry Building and in Uptown Oakland. Tanya's here today to talk about her journey as a trailblazing female chef, businesswoman, and to offer insights in race and gender in the professional kitchen. Welcome to the podcast, Tanya. Hi, Todd. Thank you. Good to be here. What's great having you here. So I want to start in France, actually, because I think that's pretty fascinating that, you know, not that it's so unusual, but that you train there and you worked in, in with French chefs and you worked in fine dining, but ultimately you settled on f- soul food to make your mark. And can you fit it all together for us of how they interrelate? Oh, yeah, of course. Well, um, I started studying French in ninth grade and continued throughout college. So I had eight years of French and always wanted to live and work in France. And when the opportunity came up to attend La Varenne, it was perfect because I had decided that I wanted to be a restaurateur. And um, I had been kind of taking notes, so to speak, from successful restaurateurs in New York at the time. And it seems like it seemed like knowing the food was really important, even if I wasn't going to be the executive chef, but I should know, you know, have an extensive food knowledge. And I also noted that there weren't many restaurants that represented um, African-American cuisine or soul food um, the way that I wanted it represented, which was in, you know, a tasteful dining room with a nice wine list and great service. Um, A lot of soul food restaurants at the time had been, you know, neighborhood joints, you know, definitely operations that didn't have budgets to build out, you know, restaurants in a contemporary way. So I aspired to do that. So you actually, your aspiration was to be a restaurateur before it was to be a chef. Is that what you were saying? Yes, that's right. That's kind of unusual, because I think looking at the trajectory of your career, what you're known for, that's like kind of surprising to me. So did it ever shift, or you just always saw being a chef as a means to an end to be a restaurateur? I saw it as a means to an end. I actually, um, you know, yeah, it took me a a longer time than I anticipated to have ownership and... Um, yeah, I just really wanted to create the environment and be a part of the whole experience and make all the decisions and, you know, the business part. And I realized when I was working my business plan and reading business books that what I really, what really resonated with me was the entrepreneurship, um, that quality of the business, not, um, not so much cooking, believe it or not. I mean, I enjoy it and I know that, you know, people enjoy my cooking, <laughs> But, um, I, yeah, I just really wanted to have multiple restaurants and uh, focus on the big picture. 
you're sort of rocking my world because I think you're so well known as a chef and not just any chef, but a chef who has, you know, food that people really crave and, and come back for, and you've made your mark. But the, the, the fact that that's sort of like the, the thing that's helped you get to where you want is, is, is pretty amazing. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. You and, never know, you know, where the road's going to take you. And and are you also saying that you always knew that you wanted your business enterprise to be around soul food or more traditional African-American food? Yes. Um, I decided, you know, and this was before I went to France. I mean, it just, it was the most authentic thing to do. Um, and I just felt that, I mean, it's, it's actually, it started off a little broader because I thought of including Caribbean food and North African and West African and really the whole diaspora of um, food that was based in, you know, uh, of African people of African descent. Um, And then I thought of like a Creole bistro, but I, you know, I definitely wanted to use uh, to honor my heritage. Well, and I thought that was one of the things that you might connect up, which is that I think as specific as French food and French training can be, it's very much about authenticity to ingredients, to terroir, to things like that. And is that also for you? Yeah. Did, did that get honed or refined in your time in France that it sort of taught you that you should be cooking and representing those things maybe closest to your heart or to your firsthand knowledge? Yeah, absolutely, because, um, you know, and, and the French have so much pride in their food culture, and, um, you know, I just, I wanted to go there to get the solid techniques, to get the, you know, credential, and so that people would take me seriously as a chef, um, and, you know, and as a knowledgeable restaurateur, so that I could, actually thought I would use the knowledge to hire a chef, and then I could... I would really know how good they were because, you know, I had been to the source. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it definitely made me look at, um, you know, American food and soul food differently. That's so interesting. Now, I, w- I want to, like, fast. So now we've gone back, and I want to go, like, way fast forward to you know, Brown Sugar Kitchen and its success in in West Oakland, but I noted in something I read in preparing that, you know, you were candid, at least in the last couple of years, about saying that one of the reasons you closed the West Oakland location was that it wasn't being profitable. And is is that one of your current focuses, especially knowing now that this has been an aspiration to be a businesswoman or a restaurateur for so long, that your priority is less... Um, less on being a chef and more on being a better businesswoman? Uh, yes, that's absolutely right. Because, you know, um, one of the reasons why I ended up in West Oakland is because it was a place that nobody else would go or wanted to go. And um, I wasn't granted access to better locations at that time. And so, um, you know, I knew that, I knew the formula. I pay enough attention to successful restaurateurs and I knew that I needed to be in a more densely populated area, um, that I needed a certain volume of, of seats to fill. Um, and you know, that you need a liquor license and all sorts of things. But that 
space did not allow me to have those things. Um, so, you know, going into it, I kind of knew it, and um, we were profitable for a few years, but then the cost of business really increased, and the population shifted a little bit, the demographic, and yeah, you know, my employees could no longer live and work in the neighborhood, so it just became difficult to attract employees to where I was as well. Um, so all those things just added up. And and do you think that though that experience is really both empowered and, and will help you move forward? I mean, I, I assume the great thing is your brand is very well established as a as a brand and what it stands for. Yeah, you know, it sort of was a happy accident because I was shopping around like a sort of Creole Bistro concept. And then the neighborhood, it just didn't seem like that neighborhood would support it. So I came up with the Brown Sugar Kitchen name and concept. And, you know, as you said, it was well-received. People, you know, love it. And I built this brand. Um, But, you know, it's just... um, I wanted to do something a, a, a little bit more elevated, um, but it just, you know, I didn't have access to the capital, to the real estate, and, um, you know, just the resources that I would need to do that. But it's, you know, I, I, feel, I feel very fortunate that um, I was able to create something that I was able to sustain uh, for so many years, despite that, those facts. Well, and also in a in a way, if you, I mean, I wouldn't say it's obviously. I think both of us would agree it's not a good thing that you didn't have the access early on. But to some degree, by being more limited, you had to be more resourceful, and thus you were more unique. If you'd been just another restaurant in San Francisco proper, it wouldn't have had maybe the kind of uniqueness or standout quality of choosing a more unusual location to kind of build a brand where you would get a big following from near and far. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, the, the cool thing about that particular neighborhood is it was, you know, right off the freeway. And so it was very accessible to visitors from out of town and, you know, people coming from San Francisco and other parts of the Bay Area. Um, so it kind of created this accessibility, uh, you know, and also the fact that it created economic accessibility because of the location um, in an underserved neighborhood. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it worked out. I'm not, um, you know, upset <laughs> that uh, the way it turned out. Um, it's a story, you know. It's, it's given me a story, and it's, it's part of it's how life unfolds sometimes. No, and I think those brand stories are really, really important and, you know, carry, carry on as I, as you know, we'll all be watching as we hope it does. So I was curious too, this is touching on it a little bit in terms of becoming a celebrity chef and being on TV and writing a lot and having your name out there. And it, presumably there's a big upside that that kind of status and particularly the exposure has been what's helpful for you to get where you're going. Is that, do you really feel that that's like one of the best things that's come out of it being, you know, being better known? Yeah, I mean, definitely the celebrity aspect helps fill the seat, you know, the media, which is, um, you know, one of the main reasons why I do it. I also enjoy, um, you know, television and radio and 
feel very comfortable doing it and would love to do more of it. Um, it's also been an area, we'll talk more later, where there has been, um, I, f- I feel, you know, gender and perhaps racial um, limitations as well. Um, but being a celebrity chef is, you know, it's not something I, I mean, I don't feel like I have the benefit, the economic association that goes with it that as some, uh, you know, people might assume. <laughs> so it's sort of, you know, a double-edged sword because, you know, people do make assumptions um, when you're on TV that you're completely successful and you've made it. And, you know, from my point of view, I haven't quite made it yet. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, is it, would you say that's the downside of it, that it can skew how people perceive you in, in different directions that are potentially either they make assumptions or not helpful? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, in, and employees as well, you know, they, they just, you know, make assumptions that you're, you know, you're all set, that you've accomplished everything that, you know, um, yeah, that you're economically set and, um, and customers as well. Um, but, you know, it does have a lot of advantages. I've had some really unique, amazing experiences um, attending events and festivals and, you know, just getting uh, special treatment. Um, you know, when I when I go out to dine with at other restaurants, so you know, I try to take it and um, you know just enjoy the benefits that, that it brings me. Well, I was I was going to ask you that. You know, I think that's a great comment that's really important for people to understand because Julia was in this position too, being famous either mm-hmm. as a chef or a cooking personality. I, uh, people make a lot of assumptions that that's what makes you wealthy. But actually, we can just set the record straight. The people who become the most wealthy as a celebrity chef is because they started endorsing and licensing products and taking their brand yeah. more mass market. And there are very few people yeah. who've right become rich as a celebrity chef from doing anything but that. Exactly. In, in, exactly. In like, do you know of anybody or do, do you agree? No. <laughs> I totally agree with you. Yeah. And I think but that's no, an that's important I think that's good to point out that a lot of people and it's an easy misperception misperception I think in the work that I do in Hollywood too people always assume actors are rich because they can get paid a lot of money but then being famous has a lot of expenses that come with it as well so that you know to some degree also being a celebrity chef if you want to sustain it hiring a publicist well that eats into your income. Right. Right, exactly. Exactly. So given all that we talked about, celebrity chefdom and being, you know, aspiring to be an entrepreneur and a businesswoman, a restaurateur, for you, how looking forward, like what's your definition of success or when will you feel you've, you've either become successful or what's your goal that sort of defines being successful? Um, you know, when I... I feel like when all my enterprises are profitable and, um, you know, the opportunities keep presenting themselves and I can keep creating new opportunities, um, you know, to have that ability to just kind of, you know, to use the Hollywood term to get greenlit for whatever I wanted to do, you know, in my creative endeavors, that would feel successful to me um, to, you know, to have, more like I really have been trying to get back on television uh, for years, and um, 
I really want to do more of that. So, you know, if I have that, then those things come like the product endorsements or, you know, creating products and selling products um, because people know that you have that outlet, that medium uh, to, to really sell it. Um, and that's something, you know, that's been part of my, I guess, you know, my visioning for, for some years. So that would show, you know, successful. Okay, so you've got this public platform. What, what, what? If you could wave a magic wand, what would you be on TV doing? I would be doing um, a show that is less about cooking and more about um, cultural bridging cultures through food. Understanding, you know, I just feel that you know I've done some culinary diplomacy work through the State Department, and I just feel that food is such a connector and in this world we are lacking connections and understanding uh, so much that I really want to use it. It's sort of like, um, you know, bringing people to the table who wouldn't ordinarily be at the table together and, you know, discussing what we're eating. So we're talking about food and maybe we're doing a little bit of cooking, but it's more about, let's find these common denominators that we have um, in enjoying food. I don't know if that, if that makes sense to you, but I just feel that, um, that there's a space for that. And you would be the host. Mm-hmm. Of course. <laughs> no, that, no, that sounds good. I mean, it sounds like in the tradition of what, uh, Patty Heenich is doing a bit with uh, the Mexican table and a bit of what Marcus Samuelson has done with no passport required. But then it sounds yeah. like you're kind of mixing in the sort of chew kind of uh, uh, conversation element to it. Yes, yes. I I love conversation over food. I love dinner parties. And I, I you know, what I enjoy the most about being a restaurateur is when I can walk through my dining room and connect people that I know and, and, you know, connect them to one another and say, like, you should know each other, um, and here's why. And, you know, and from different worlds. Or look in my restaurant and see the variety of people that, that dine there together. I get it. it I get sounds, so much pleasure it, out of that. It, yeah. No, it sounds like something that the world is much in need of. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk to Tanya about her very well-credentialed opinion about race and gender in the professional kitchen. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, 
and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. Check out MoFAD's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org events. Welcome back. We're talking to celebrity chef and businesswoman Tanya Holland from Brown Sugar Kitchen about her rise as a black female chef. So we started touching on this, Tanya, about, you know, you are an accomplished female chef, which is still rare. You're a famous black chef, also sadly still relatively rare, but both a female black chef who is well-known and accomplished. It's almost like you're a unicorn, um, which obviously I think is not a great thing, but do you feel like a unicorn? Um, I often have, you know, I was thinking uh, about this and, you know, we just lost Chef Leah Chase. And when I was uh, going to culinary school, I learned, I learned about her as well as, um, you know, of course I knew about Edna Lewis and they were the only, um, you know, women chefs of color that I knew of who had gotten any sort of notoriety and they were, you know, in their 70s or 80s then, and so, you know, I just thought, like, wow, I hope I don't have to wait that long to get some kind of recognition. And then I was thinking, you know, besides myself and Carla Hall, there's there's really no women chefs over the age of 50. Um, you know, that, that there's generations where there was no recognition, uh, black women chefs from, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, there's, there's no one. And so, you know, now there's a lot of chefs in their 40s uh, and 30s that are getting recognized and um, get, receiving awards. But, um, yeah, there was, there was no one who looked like me doing what I aspired to do. Um, so I guess so. <laughs> well, and I wanted to ask you about talking about why that matters so much. And I think you were starting to talk about that. But obviously, if there's there's a big generation gap, and A, there were never that many people either, and a lot of people like Leah Chase really did not get recognized, particularly by the mainstream or wider community until very, very late in their careers, that right. it's great that there's young people, right, but who, who are they looking up to? I mean, you right. and Carla. Yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, definitely the editorial community is also, you know, contributed to that as well as, you know, yes, just racial issues in this country. You know, there were kitchens that I just wasn't allowed to work in. I, I tried, but they, you know, they didn't create, they didn't provide opportunity for me. Um, so I just kept looking for ones where I could find some kind of opportunity and um, learned a lot on my own and, um, you know, a few people that there was, you know, Patrick Clark was an African-American male chef who I admired. Uh, he passed away more than a decade ago now. I can't remember, um, you know, but there weren't, yeah, there weren't women. And now when I'm out at events, you know, I can see it in my colleagues' eyes. They're just like, oh, wow, Tanya's our only black colleague. You know, the the ones who are my age, like, you know, Tom Colicchio and uh, the chefs that are my age that are in their 50s. They, you know, they don't have um, any black peers because <laughs> we weren't given the um, the opportunity. 
Well, and I wanted to talk about that a, a little bit more specifically with you to the, you know, to the extent you're comfortable in that I think it's really hard if particularly if you're not black or maybe from a major minority group to really understand that the playing field isn't level and that it's you know, sort of easy to say like, oh, well, maybe Tanya didn't get those positions because they just didn't gel with her personality or maybe she was too negative. But I think if you can to kind of describe some of the situations where you really felt like, you know, the door, either the door wasn't open or you didn't get a position because of that and how how it was clear to you that that was the case, that it wasn't really anything you were doing quote unquote wrong or that you weren't the right fit. Yeah. I mean, there was a a kitchen that I worked in um, where I accepted, you know, I started off on the salad, even though I had been a saute cook at a previous restaurant and um, this restaurant was definitely more um, notable, had a better reputation. So then uh, I got, I think I got moved to hot appetizers and then a saute position became available and I asked the chef if I could work it and he said no you're not ready yet and I said well I, I'm pretty sure that I can do it but it didn't even give me a chance so he hired a guy who did not do well and then the position came up again and then he wouldn't let me try for it um, and he he put uh, another guy cook who had started I think after me in the position and so, you know, I just decided that I would leave because clearly I was not seen as somebody who was promotable in his mind. And I had, you know, great work ethic. You know, I was I was trained. None of the other cooks on the line had gone to any kind of formal culinary school. Nor had the chef. So I think, you know, I was a little bit of a threat to them. You know, I know I was. And that's sort of... Um, what I've faced a lot of my career is people underestimate what my intelligence and my drive is. And so then when I get in positions, then they're like, oh, wait, wait, no, we can't let her, you know, outshine us. <laughs> and um, so then I left and he said, well, why are you leaving? And I said, you know, I, you won't promote me. And I said, you should promote Aaron, I, this other, this woman who worked with me to the chef and, he said, oh, no, no, she's not ready. And then it turns out after I left, he did. And so then she became a sous chef. So, you know, and she was a white woman. And I think, you know, that was just kind of my role is to open doors for everyone, you know, who came after me. Um, but it was, you know, I was in my late 20s and it was really it was very, you know, disappointing that, you know, after I went to the right schools, I knew the right people, I had a great work ethic, but that didn't matter. Um, so, you know, it just, that was my story. And and do you think that these are more sort of like baked in biases rather than anything overtly sexist or racist, that they, the people you worked with came from traditions where women weren't seen as head chefs and certainly black women weren't seen as that or, 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 do you not analyze it farther than that? Oh, no, no. I've been analyzing it for years. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think there's just, yeah, a lot of biases. Um, you know, the kitchens are, yeah, it's, it's a patriarchal, um, you know, 
world. And um, it's been very Euro male centric for, for decades. And so, you know, I was on the East coast as well. I think there were, there were definitely more um, examples of women chefs on the West coast. And I just, you know, regrettably now took a long time to get out here uh, because, um, you know, but I was from the East coast. So I wanted, that's where I wanted to be based. But again, that was in part my, the reason I moved out to the West coast was for opportunity that I wasn't receiving uh, back there. That's, that's really interesting that you bring that up because I, I grew up in the Midwest. My family's from the East Coast. I went to the right schools mm-hmm. in the Midwest and the East right. Coast, but I always felt like when I moved, and I was actually born in Oakland, and when I moved back to oh, California, wow. yeah, Kaiser Hospital, um, <laughs> downtown Oakland, um, yeah. that California has a very different mentality about who you are. And ba- I always yeah. feel like back east, it's a lot about who's your family, where'd you go to school, your credentials. Yeah. And I feel yeah. like, I, ca- I don't know how much it's evolved with the wealth and growth in California, but it used to be very much about, it's about what can you do? And exactly. show me what you can do. And if you can do a lot, right. there, there, there's a much more open view. Was that was that your experience? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um People are just open to entrepreneurship, open to new ideas out here. Um, and, you know, I was often, when I first moved out here, asked to compare the New York restaurant scene versus the San Francisco restaurant scene. And, you know, it's like comparing apples to oranges. But I felt like in New York, you know, anyone could open a restaurant, but in here, you better know how to cook, you know. And, um, you are really rewarded on your ability to do a job well, you know? And, yeah, like you said, it doesn't matter who you know, where you went to school, or anything. Well, and I think you're a great example because, of course, you did have those credentials. You had many of the right. experiences, and right? You, you had the uh, same resume. Mm-hmm. I did. And, you know, I even had a show on the Food Network in 2000. And, you know, it didn't matter in New York. Nobody cared. I thought I would be able to parlay that into, um, to leverage some, into some opportunities um, of getting investors and, or an executive chef position. And um, they didn't happen. But out here, is really where my star rose, where that celebrity, you know, mattered because people saw me as an expert um, and took me seriously. And it didn't matter, you know, what I look like. That's really interesting. So a co- yeah. on the last episode, I had a, a Brit- well, nominally British Indian chef called Asma Khan, who's also become both celebrated here in London and the UK and then on Chef's Table most recently. And she said something really profound that as much as she's had, all, similarly to you, success through her food that is very specific to her cultural and family upbringing, that that's not her goal. And her goal is really to change society. And she thinks that... I. What she was advocating, and you don't have to, you can listen to it in the, it was in episode 51, that 
what needs to change for opportunities is basically more women need to have more kitchens and restaurants of their own and that there's going to have to be a kind of breaking down of the system or going around the current system to be able to facilitate that that she wants to you know devote her life's work work to so do you share her view or what things do need to change to create more opportunities for women and people of color particularly to be business people in the food world I absolutely do share her view, and that's, you know, that's what inspires me more than anything uh, in my work today is providing opportunities for young women of color um, so that they can feel like there is a possibility of them, you know, achieving and accomplishing what they want to do. I feel like if I don't get there, they're going to feel like, well, I'm not going to be able to get there. And, you know, they say to me, like, oh, you're so inspiring. Thank you so much. And you know, I'm grateful that, you know, there's this, there's, you know, people out there who, who still aspire to be in this business, even though it hasn't, uh, there haven't been many open doors. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of my goal too, is to, you know, make people think, change the industry. That's why I want, you know, more, um, economic success so I can have more impact and influence because that's what it takes often. You know, look how, influential chefs like Emeril and Bobby Flay and Mario Vitale have been because of the economic, you know, um, power that they have, you know, and the media power. That's really what it takes. No, I think that's interesting. I mean, that was when I asked Asma Khan the same question. She was like, oh, it's really simple. It's capital. It's access to capital, and right exactly. now that the system exactly. is rigged against women to have that access. And if that was changed, or mm-hmm. I think what you're proposing is women sort of need to, um, maybe not need is the right word, but for lack of things changing very quickly, need to be in a position to help capitalize other female-driven businesses. Yeah, absolutely. Um we have to be able to build our own enterprises, you know, and, and be in control of our destiny and have the same opportunity. Uh, opportunity to have the same exposure as the male chefs at the high-end festivals, at, um, you know, on the television programs, um, the book deals, um, all the, you know, all the media that helps. So is that the aspiration that you're kind of looking at? Is that the way to get all the things you want in your life as well as change the world is to make the to grow and make the brown sugar kitchen brand really successful and possibly pervasive? Yes. Um it's been my, you know, goal to to replicate it around the country and, you know, hopefully around the world. We're trying to build a, a prototype uh that's replicable. So um we can, um, yeah, so that, you know, there's multiple <laughs> brown sugar kitchens and hopefully, um, you know, it'll, they'll all be successful and then I'll have that economic success and I can influence um, and make change in this industry. And is it is it too soon? Are you trying to perfect your your new um, more casual quick service operation in, in the ferry building, and then you, your more upscale dining in in Oakland before you expand bigger? Or are there already plans for further expansion um, in other places other than the Bay Area? Well, there's definitely conversations um, happening for other locations. Um, 
there's a developer in LA that's very interested. A couple of years ago, I was approached by a developer in Florida, but that didn't work out. Um, there's a developer in Japan that's very interested. Um, and I have some colleagues that have had success over there. So, um, you know, I'm definitely looking, but right now we're really focusing on the um, the takeout model at the ferry building because that will probably be the one that will be the most replicable. The one in Oakland will remain a flagship. Um, I may do some more full-service ones, um, but they certainly require a lot more capital and energy. Um, and so, and it's hard to replicate, you know, what the vibe that created in Oakland, as you know, Oakland is, is very unique. It's a very unique community. It's very integrated. Um, and that contributes to, you know, what we have here. Well, excellent. Well, we can all watch this space. Are you a Brown Sugar Kitchen fan? Let us know. And let us know what you think. Are we making progress in rates and gender parity in professional kitchens? Or is it still slow in coming? Let us know what you think. Send us an email, or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Tanya is going to share her Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Jenna Liute, and I'm the host of Eating Matters here on HRN. Join me as I talk to food systems experts about the issues that shape our experiences of buying, cooking, and eating food. You can find Eating Matters wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Joya's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Okay, Tanya, your turn. What's your Julia moment? Uh, Well, um, Julia came to visit the cooking school that I attended in France, La Varenne, and we didn't know she was coming, I think, until a day before, and she was coming to give a, a lesson. And, I mean, we were thrilled because you just didn't think that you'd ever meet Julia Child, you know? And Mm -hmm. this was 1992, and she came over to uh, the school, and we were having a little reception. We had champagne. We were drinking champagne and talking, and we were in our uniforms wearing our, our Czech chef's pants, and Julia asked, where did you get those pants? You know, and, and I thought, like, why don't you know this? This is this is chef's wear. <laughs> but uh, she was just really charming and gracious, and that's what struck me the most. She was very accessible. Um, you know, you just she was such a you know daunting figure. Like you said, she was very tall and then well known, and I expected her not to be so accessible, and she was. She was great. Yeah, that's my story. And um, I noticed you, you, you still have a picture of you and Julia. So obviously that's yeah. been a pretty big inspiration for you since that time. Otherwise, I don't think you would you would uh, display <laughs> that. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, you know, everything she did, she was a very, you know, from what I know, strong woman, strong willed, um, 
determine as well. And, you know, I think, you know, like I said, there weren't a lot of examples. And you mentioned that she had the success later in life. And I think that's also significant for women. I think um, the way our society is set up, you know, finally when we're in our 40s and 50s and, you know, even 60s, is we get stronger and more confident and, uh, you know, we don't really care what people think and just start <laughs> doing what we want to do. Um, so I'm really, um, I, she's still an inspiration for sure. That's great. Well, thank you very much for sharing your Julia moment and sharing your, your personal stories and um, for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me here. It's been great. Our pleasure. And thanks to everyone for listening. Remember to follow us on social media. Our handles are at Julia Child on Facebook, at Julia Child Foundation, all one word on Instagram, and at Julia Child JCF on Twitter. My Twitter handle, my Twitter handle is at T Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. And to keep up with Chef Tanya and the latest from Brown Sugar Kitchen, it's at Ms. Tanya Holland and at Brown Sugar Kitchen on Instagram and plain old at Tanya Holland and at Brown Sugar Kitch on Twitter. Search for Chef Tanya Holland and Brown Sugar Kitchen on Facebook. Tanya's T-A-N-Y-A and Holland like the country. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please remember to give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after on wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.